Welcome to the first episode of the Goldwater Scholar Highlights Podcast, where we interview notable Goldwater Scholars and honorable mentions on their educational backgrounds, current research, and careers. If you're a current scholar or past scholar, or if you're an undergraduate interested in applying, this is a great way to learn from the science and career experiences of others who are in the Goldwater Scholar community. This podcast is available on the Apple Podcast app, Google Play, and Spotify. And in addition to this podcast, we also have a lot of great written articles that you can access on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter by searching for the Goldwater Scholar community. Okay, now the guest that we have on today works in STEM education. She got her PhD in cell biology at Yale University, working in cell adhesion in the Calderwood lab. She then became the STEM education program director at the Poorview Center for Teaching and Learning at Yale, and she is now the assistant director of women's health research at Yale. This is Beth Luoma. So Beth, can you tell us a bit about your position? Sure. So my current position, I'm assistant director of women's health research at Yale. I'm new to the position. I've been here for about three months. I started April 1st, so I'm still learning the ropes too. Um, But our center has been around for about 20 years with the goal of promoting scientific research that looks at sex and gender differences and leverages those differences to have better health outcomes down the road. Um, So it's really an interesting, broad sweeping mission. Um, It's broken down into five key initiatives. So we think about how we can advance scientific research. We think about how we can build scientific collaborations between researchers at Yale and beyond. Uh, We think about training and mentoring the next generation. So I work closely with a cohort of undergraduate fellows. Um, We think about educating the community. How can we take the research that's happening here at Yale that we're funding and bring it out to the community? We have an excellent communications officer who does that translation uh, very well. And then we also think about how can we have this national presence? How can we make sure that we're not only affecting the research that's happening at Yale, but also use that as a platform to affect how research is done at the national level? So that's the mission encapsulated. And, and what I love about it is I get to have my hands in many different pieces of that. As I already alluded to, you know, I'm able to um, uh, oversee a group of undergraduate fellows as they're pursuing research in this area. I'm able to work with our Yale faculty as we um, go through the proposals that we receive for for their for funding and to help select which projects will be funded and then support those projects as they go on. Um, so yeah, it's been a really good, interesting first three months, to say the least. Yeah, it sounds like quite a big undertaking. You have a lot of different areas that you're approaching it from. Is there, how did you get interested in STEM education and what are kind of the issues that you saw in it that inspired you to go in that area? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, I always point back to the excellent teachers that I've had previously as the reason why I got interested in education. So I always cite Mr. Prezuto from Shelton High School in Connecticut, who was a fantastic biology teacher. I had him my freshman year. I had him for AP biology and just really sparked my interest in biology. Got fell in love with DNA as a molecule at that point. And then had an excellent undergraduate advisor, Rob Bellin, at the College of the Holy Cross, who, again, just cultivated not only that love of science, but that love of good mentorship and good teaching. So it's always been a passion of mine. Um, I knew as I wanted to pursue my Ph.D., which I ended up doing at Yale, that you know I really wanted education to be at the heart of my career. 
but I didn't really know what that would look like. Did it mean being a teaching faculty member? Um, or, you know, there are a lot of careers I just didn't know about at the time as an undergraduate student or a graduate student. So my involvement at the Porvu Center for Teaching and Learning in terms of the STEM education initiatives I did there, and then now at Women's Health Research at Yale, the type of educational outreach I'm able to do here, um, it just kind of unfolded for me because I had that passion for education and for teaching and kept seeking opportunities that allowed me to do that. Very, very cool. Yeah. So how did you choose between being a professor and going into a teaching center? Absolutely. I never knew teaching centers existed when I was an undergraduate, right? <laughs> Surprise. Um, so it was hard to know that would be a career option if I didn't know it was there, which is you know what this podcast is doing, hopefully, is exposing our Goldwater scholars to opportunities they don't even know about. So I could, first I can define a teaching center too, just to be helpful if this is the first time you're hearing about it. So um, the great irony of becoming a faculty member where you're in a teaching position is that most faculty members aren't trained to teach, right? Mm -hmm. You typically go from your undergraduate experience to your graduate experience, maybe you do a postdoc, you become a faculty member, and suddenly you find yourself at the front of a lecture hall with 300 students and you think, hmm, I never had any training in education. How do I do this? And so teaching centers are really on the rise throughout the country. The idea that we're supporting both current faculty and future faculty to be better educators. And that's obviously just good for science and STEM as a whole, right? Our science will be better if our, um, our students are better educated and more students feel they belong in science because you know our professors are trained to teach appropriately. So um, yeah, so I, I was drawn to Yale among the schools I applied to for grad school because number one, the biology program required and emphasized teaching experience. And two, during my recruitment weekend, I learned about this teaching center and thought that's that's great. There's an excellent support network for graduate students as they try to learn how to teach and, and to be in that role. Um, so that's what part of what drew me to Yale. And then I, uh, my, my motto for a while was the more I got involved with the CTL or the Center for Teaching and Learning, the more I got involved, the more I got sucked in. And so I started by going to some of the workshops, you know, learning about what's active learning or how do you do assessment or how do you make sure all your students belong or how do you really support first generation students, just all of these different um, issues you can encounter in teaching. And uh, then I learned that it was the graduate students that were leading these workshops. So I thought, mm -hmm how can I do that? How can I go lead these workshops in addition to my research and my lab work? Um, so I started getting involved as one of the McDougal graduate teaching fellows at Yale. So leading these workshops on effective teaching practices. Then my last year of graduate school, I became the coordinator. So I was overseeing our team of about 20 fellows as we were leading these workshops and programming. And um, I started to think, wow, I really like the side gig I have going, right? So you think about like, yes, you know, things are going well in the lab. I was able to publish and all, and all those good things that you want out of a graduate experience. But I found what was really driving me through the hard days of research when things didn't work was this side experience of thinking about teaching and helping others teach more effectively. I found it really interesting. So I started going to professional conferences in that area. Um, if you are interested in this area, which we call loosely educational development, um, there's an excellent conference uh, run by the POD Network. So it's a professional organizational development network in higher education. We can meet other professionals like that who work at teaching centers. Um, so I got involved with that as a graduate that's student. An organization, that's an organization called POD? Yeah, so it's called the POD Network. If you Google it, you'll come across the website. But it's for people who are in this profession of, of educational development, primarily people who work at teaching centers um, or work directly with instructors. So again, a whole world I knew nothing about, but that's what kind of 
drew me in then was, oh, I could actually pursue this as my career. So um, it's kind of a gradient over the course of graduate school going from not being involved with that, the, that work at all to being so involved that suddenly I was able to pursue a full-time position when I was graduating at, at the, in STEM education. And can you talk a bit about the initiatives that you've worked on in STEM education? Sure. What I loved about my scientific training as a PhD student was it taught me how to dive into a field that I didn't know and, and learn it and learn the literature. And I felt like the same transition happened for me when I started at the Porvu Center was I had to dive into a new field. I had to learn what the literature looked like in the STEM education space. Um, and so that kind of mentality, I think, really helped me to jump in and, and you have a transferable skills to manage those types of projects that you're asking about. So um, when I was at the Porvoo Center, I was there for three and a half years. I managed a number of initiatives that were supported by grant funding. Uh, we had one grant from HHMI and we had one grant from the Helmsley Charitable Trust. And together, um, this funding supported two major initiatives. So the first is a national program called the Summer Institutes on Scientific Teaching. And these are basically multi-day, sometimes week-long boot camps for faculty who may not have that much experience in education to come together and think about what are the principles of scientific teaching? How do we engage our students through active learning? How do we make sure that we know that they're learning through proper assessment? And how do we make sure that they belong, that they know that they belong um, through inclusive teaching practices? And so I on the ground was a you know, program project manager for that, thinking about how do we coordinate this national initiative? Um, what's in our curriculum? Uh, what, how do we know that our program is working? So I was very much a liaison between the faculty members who were leading the programming, the evaluators, so a lot of um, experts we had on team in, so, in the social sciences who were telling us whether the program was working, our internal staff at Yale. Um, so it was a lot about uh, communication, um, about my pedagogical knowledge, my teaching knowledge, and also being able to kind of stand on my credibility as a, as a PhD trained scientist. Um, so that was one half was the Summer Institutes on Scientific Teaching. So we led them during the summer and there's all the administrative work that goes with that year round. The other part that I got to do was to uh, lead a teaching postdoc program. So if you're interested in teaching, you could also think about doing a postdoc that's teaching oriented and you could end up in a program like the one we ran. Um, so we had, I ended up training over the time there, six postdocs who uh, taught at Yale and at neighboring schools. They taught at the University of Bridgeport and Housatonic Community College. And the idea was that they were innovating STEM courses at Yale and then bring those innovations to our partner institutions. Um, they were able to bring it to a different body of students and then be mentored by the faculty there about how do you adapt to this context now, what you've already developed, um, and make sure that you're reaching our students effectively as well. So they've almost all gone off to faculty positions themselves now. So it's been you know, great to be a part of their success. So what advice would you give our scholars who are listening who are interested in STEM education? I think one of the wonderful things about being focused on research in STEM is that you can be laser focused and you can just go out there and um, get into an area that's so super specific and actually push the boundary of knowledge and make an impact in that area. 
but at the same time, I think it's really important to have a broader lens too. So you want to become an expert in your niche area, but at the same time, in order to have be transferable and to move in positions like this, you want to be well-rounded as an individual too. So um, I really value the fact that both my that my undergraduate institution was a liberal arts education. I felt like I was thrown into other courses that promoted my critical thinking skills, that promoted my ability to write. I mean, the number of times I really go back and lean on those writing skills, all those English papers and things that I wrote as an undergraduate, now as a scientist, as a communicator, I mean, those those skills are, are so valuable and so important. Um, so the ability, anything that really feeds into your ability to talk about your science, to write about your science, um, to be well organized, to manage a project, to collaborate with others. I mean, it sounds like these nebulous soft skills, but they're just, they're so important. Um, especially when you think about STEM education, if you're working to make a change, you want to be able to interface with lots of different people, not just scientists. So being open-minded, well-rounded, exposed to a lot of different ways of thinking, any, any opportunities you can, do, you can take advantage of to do that, I think are important. So opportunities to develop soft skills and expanding the range of people that you can talk to must be important. Mm -hmm. And I think too, adding to that, any opportunities you can find for leadership, right? So you want to be able to operate effectively on a team, but if you want to advance in, in management positions too, um, you can't just say, oh, I'm a good leader, right? You need to be able to back that up with evidence, just like you back up your science, right? So what is the evidence that you're an experienced, effective leader? Um, can you, lead, as an undergraduate, is there an, a student organization that you can lead and really point to as I was able to collab, I was able to bring a bunch of individuals and, and constituents together to run this huge event on campus or um, to bring this club together or whatever it may be. Um, it shows that you take initiative and, and have the ability to have both attention to detail and I think broader vision and broader goals. Right. And is there is there any advice you would give yourself if you could go back to your undergraduate years? To my undergraduate years. So I did an interesting thing fall of my senior year. I was all set to go to graduate school and it was October and I stopped and said, hmm, PhD is a long time. Do I do I really want to do this? And so I actually I was about to get my applications together. And I said, I don't I think I'm going to go try something else first. And so I ended up. Um, working for a year at Dana-Farber before I went to grad school. And um, I think I was a little uncertain about that decision, right? Um, I felt like I was jumping ship in some way. And so I think I would go back and tell myself, you know, what's really served me well in my career is just being open to the opportunities that are immediately in front of me that are the most exciting and interesting. I feel like that hasn't steered me wrong. So to say at that point, like, yeah, go after it, go, you know, go take that job at Dana-Farber, looking back, I ended up on uh, a nature publication, um, the selective inhibition of bromo domains um, that's been cited thousands of times, right? And it was just because I took that risk, I got to be part of this incredible, exciting project with Jay Bradner, who's now um, at Novartis. And I, I wouldn't have had that opportunity if I hadn't just gone kind of with my whims at the time. So I think there's a balance in career planning between long-term, you know, I'm on a trajectory, I want to make sure I'm focused and I'm thinking about long-term goals, but also balancing that with what can I achieve right now that's just exciting and interesting, and who knows what doors that opportunity will open that I wouldn't have known about. Yeah, yeah, having having a good balance between doing what you're interested in currently and, and thinking long range, that's, that's a tough balance for a lot of people to walk. Um, mm -hmm. And do you have any advice on choosing a major or 
narrowing down into a field or would you suggest to people to remain more open-minded for, for most of their um, early career? Yeah, I think it's important to do what you love. Um, at the end of the day, right, just to keep following your passions. And so for me, my passion was always biology. I always found it fascinating to think about how the human body worked and, and how a molecule like DNA can lead to, you know, all the changes we see both, you know, as individuals and the species and evolution. It just, it just opened my mind. Um, and so I just, I just don't think your passions can lead you wrong. I mean, I have so many friends and colleagues who were pre-med but you know, their majors were in English or in Spanish or whatever it may be, and they utilize those skills now as doctors and as professionals. So you know, there's, there's um, a lot to be said for being thoughtful about choosing your major, um, but I also wouldn't limit yourself to a traditional trajectory. You know, we're, not, we're not in an age anymore where most people start a career and remain in the same place for 30 to 40 years, right? People are constantly evolving and jumping to new positions. I just changed positions after three years too, because I saw a new exciting opportunity. Um, I think that's where we are. So, you know, I mean, on the flip side too, if you are, back to my phrase, laser focused on, I'm going to be a practicing physician or I'm, I want to be a tenure track professor, like there are also kind of clear roots to that too. So I would say, you know, if you know that's what you want to do, I mean, of course, go after it, follow that path and make sure you're taking the appropriate steps for that. But it's also okay if that's not what you want to do and you want to kind of allow the wind to take you a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I remember us talking a little bit about your interest in women in science as well with the gender differences. Mm -hmm. Can we talk a little bit about that and, and what you see as being the, the issues in that and how to tackle those? Sure. I was sitting at my desk at the Board Center and I helped distribute job postings to graduate students and postdocs. And so across my desk came a position that said, Assistant Director of Women's Health Research at Yale. And I just clicked on it of, well, what's that? <laughs> I, have, I, have, I wasn't even aware of the center. Um, and when I started reading the description, I realized how much it sounded like me. Um, they were looking for a PhD in a scientific discipline with at least two years of program management experience. And what wasn't necessarily written explicitly in the job description, but resonated with me was a mission of inclusion. So you've probably heard me already say a few times as I thought about teaching in the classroom, something I really prioritize is making sure students feel that they belong in STEM. You know, I think we are burdened by a stereotype of what a scientist may look like um, or act like, and to know that science is best when we have many diverse perspectives at the table. Um, and that, that will lead to more creative and effective solutions because we have many voices and then we're going to have, you know, we'll do better science if we have more people at the table. Um, and so as I, I, that's something I brought to how I approached education, how I was teaching my classes uh, for undergraduates. And I saw the transferable skill of thinking about inclusion to the mission of women's health research at Yale, which was not only do we need to think about including people when we think about doing the science, we, we need to think about how we are including people um, in terms of who we're studying, right? So it's not just, do we have uh, diverse voices or perspectives at the tables we're talking about the science, but when we look at our data sets themselves, are we thinking about diversity? And so um, what was really striking for me as I learned more and more about women's health research at Yale were two dates that are more recent than, than that are comfortable for me. The first is that it wasn't until 1993 that federal law required that females be included in clinical trials. 
Mm. Only 1993. I mean, it's astounding to take that in. And secondly, it was 2016 when the NIH started requiring that we look at female animal models and female cells and tissues. So it seems like this is something that should have been done a long time ago, but it's only more recently that's gotten to the point of requirement. So in previous studies, scientists would just choose male mouse models and male tissues and base all of their research off of that. And then they they would isolate it to that gender. Um, what, like why do you think they were only choosing one gender? Mm, that's a great question. The irony is that uh, scientists would often limit their samples uh, to male models because it was thought that male models are simpler, right? When you think about female anatomy, you're dealing with hormonal cycles. There is more variability. And so therefore, let's say, let's just hone in on just the males. We'll figure out what's going on. And then it'll apply to females. But you hopefully that feels like some circular broken logic, right? So we're saying that we are only going to study males because females are too complicated. But then the results that we find in males will just apply to females. <laughs> like there's the total breakdown of scientific logic there. The other premise that's underlying that is that there's more variability in females. Mm. But there's a really great piece that was just published in Science by uh, Rebecca Shansky. And she points out, well, actually, there's quite a bit of hormonal variability in males as well. We just don't mm. think about it. So an example would be thinking about mice living in a community. Um, you can think about alpha dominance and testosterone levels will actually fluctuate. So the very reason that we're saying we're not studying females, there's actually hormonal fluctuation in males as well. So um, there's, there's a lot to be done here coming back to STEM education, right? It's a different form of education. Before I was thinking about how are we physically working with students in the classroom? Now we're talking about how can we educate our scientists to make sure they're doing the best science possible. So you're interested in identifying sort of dogmatic principles that are causing enormous systematic errors. And this is actually one pretty big um, systematic error with, with having one gender type being studied. Some of our staff members have done some great on-the-street video interviews with people around the Yale campus asking a lot of these questions. So, uh, and you can go to our website. It's um, YaleWHR.org. So YaleWHR.org. And uh, there are a few videos of these interviews where um, uh, our staff will ask, so, you know, would you want to take a medication that's only been tested in the other gender? And people are like, well, of course not. That sounds terrible. I want to make sure like, you know, enough validation is done so it applies to me. And then they unfold the story of, well, actually, a lot of medications that we take have only been tested in one gender and they were translated to women. So um, and there have been effects with that. I mean, there have been studies then to go back and see, are we actually doing the appropriate dosing? Are there gender differences uh, underlying that? Um, a great example that's given frequently is thinking about Ambien and whether the dosage has been appropriate for women. Um, some of that could be due to sex differences. There are also underlying variables, thinking about um, BMI and, and, and body weight and all of that. But um, at, the, at, the, at the end of the day, we should be looking at this. So let's transition into work-life balance and talk about what some of your interests are outside of STEM education. Sure. So I am uh, married with two small children. So that is the first thing that immediately comes to mind is that uh, I like to say that I, I run a second shift. <laughs> so I'm here at my job during the day. Um, you know, the environment of my office is 
you know, a pretty typical like 830 to 5 culture. Um, obviously, if they're pressing deadlines and things like that, we expand as needed or, or other events. Um, but I come home and I, I put my bag down on the kitchen table and I pick up my second job. I'm picking up my my baby Ruth, who's seven months old, or I'm picking up my toddler James, who's three years old. And, and I begin that life. So um, that's been I think that's something to really um, value is making sure that you establish the balance that you need in your career because I believe I am a better scientist and I am a better professional because of my home life. And I think I'm a better mom um, and a better wife and everything I do in my family life because of my my career roles. Um, I am a person, if it hasn't shown already, that I like to do many things at once. Um, so that happens within my career and I think that happens holistically within my life too. Um, I also, you know, family life takes up a lot of time right now because I do have small, two small children, but in addition to that, um, I still really value um, mentoring and just scientific educational outreach in general into the community. So um, I, just last night, I was at a career panel for women in science at Yale um, talking about many of these same issues. So anytime I'm asked to do those types of things, I, I really, I valued from the advice and expertise of so many people along the way. I love to give back in those ways. Um, I've also over the years volunteered for the New Haven Science Fair program as a science fair judge. Um, we'd go to family science nights at the local elementary middle schools and do science experience, uh, experiments with them. Um, and I'm also involved in my church community. So um, I'm a Catholic, um, and so my church has a social action committee. I'm involved with that. Um, I'm involved in kind of collecting donations for various agencies, um, our diaper bank, our food bank, things like that. So, um, you know, I, I, I find when I look, I step back and kind of look holistically both at my career and at my just general life that, you know, personal life that taps into it. I, most things tend to fall in the same areas. I tend to be involved in science. I tend to be involved in outreach. I tend to be involved in things that benefit the community. And I find whether it's at work or whether it's at home, I try to, I tend to gravitate toward those types of opportunities. Yeah, that's that's really cool that you're building up your community in so many different ways. Was having kids ever an issue with your career? I always knew I wanted to be a scientist and I always knew I wanted to be a mother. So um, the interesting advice I was given as an undergraduate about that very uh, question was at a career panel. Yet again, these are great events to go to just to tap in. And I remember a student asking like, when's a good time to have kids? Like, I wanna be a faculty member. Um, you know, I'm gonna be a graduate student. I'm gonna be a postdoc. Then I'm gonna go for faculty. When's a good time to have kids? And I remember the panelists very sternly looked back at her and said, there is no good time to have kids. <laughs> and at first I was taken aback. Like, that sounds terrible. Like, don't have children. That's not at all what she was saying. What she was saying was that I mean, there's no good convenient time for anything, right? Like, and I, I really value that uh, approach is that, you know, you know, life took its course, you know, I was going for my PhD along the way I got married, you know, we decided to have kids and just kind of this, you know, trust of things will work out, right? So, you know, I had my children, I was able to continue my career. I have friends um, and mentors who have had children during graduate school, during their postdoc, during their first faculty position, during their staff position, whatever it may be. So I think it's having a confidence that you'll you'll figure it out whenever it happens. So, um, you know, to, to make sure you build up a support network and, and find the people you need. But um, I don't know. I just I wanted both things at the same time. I didn't want to wait for either. So that was kind of my approach. <laughs> Sounds like it worked out pretty well. Um, <laughs> your, does your husband also have a career in science? How, how did you meet 
Yeah, that's a great question too. So we um, we met at the College of Holy Cross. Um, he is a political scientist by training. Um, I'm a cell biologist by training. And what's very interesting is we speak a lot of the same jargon now because we're both in academic administration. So he is an institutional researcher. Um, and so when we think about, I don't, just down to budgets, like how grant money and uh, institutional money flow and, and how that allows programs and projects to happen. I mean, we end up talking about a lot of the same issues just from different lenses within a university system. Um, so that's really been interesting. But no, he was, you know, I met him my freshman year of college and we've been together ever since. So uh, we did our graduate school and, and kind of professional launches together. Wow, that's such a great story. Um, did you both ever run into problems with um, applying to different universities and different areas? Yes, yeah, so we applied for graduate school at the same time. He in political science and I was looking for uh, biology and we did our search up and down the East Coast and tried to coordinate schools as best we could. Um, I uh, ended up kind of having my selection of schools and um, he decided, you know, I'll go where you're going. So I said uh, yes to Yale. And shortly after that, he had a full ride at a school of his choosing, which was in D.C. <laughs> and so we actually were long distance for about two and a half years at the start of graduate school. Um, once he completed his master's, he moved to Connecticut and we've been living locally since. But um, that was something we had to navigate. That's a real thing to think about with the two body pro uh, problem is, um, you know, will you travel together? Are you willing to be apart for a bit? Um, and those are you know conversations that couples obviously need to have. All right, Beth, one last question. If someone's listening and they're wondering what skills they should try to develop during their undergraduate or their graduate years, what sort of advice would you give them? When I think day to day about what I do, a lot of it is about project manage management. It's about people skills. It's about um, effective leadership. It's about confidence. It's about public speaking. All of those things that you may or may not get during your PhD and so, or during your undergraduate training. And so to think about seeking out those types of opportunities in whatever way you can. Um, I, I feel like I'm, I'm repeating myself from before, but it's just, it's so, it's so valuable to have those skills in addition to your content knowledge. Um, at the end of the day, what's going to get you a job is an interview and an ability to sell yourself and, and to speak um, with confidence and authority. And so practice those skills as early as you can so that you'll not only be successful in your job, but you can get the job in the first place too. <laughs> Beth, well, this has been great. Thank you again so much for being with us on Goldwater Scholar Highlights. Again, if you're listening, you can access this podcast on the Apple Podcast app, Google Play, and Spotify. And we also have a lot of great articles written that you can access through our social media sites on Facebook. Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter by searching for the Goldwater Scholar community. Thank you so much for having me, and my thanks to the Goldwater program again, too. As you can tell, it set me on a good path. <laughs> well, Beth, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you. If you're listening, thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll talk to you soon with our next guest.